So in the year 2019, I think it was around the springtime, I woke up and I had this this kind of dull ache in my lower left abdomen. And I didn't think much of it because I'm getting older and a lot of stuff hurts now. So I just ignored it. Went to work and about halfway through the day, uh, the pain started to get a little worse. So I, I went home and I said, I'm just going to take a nap because typically naps solve half of the world's problems. So I'm going to take a nap, which I did. And I woke up and it was still there. It was actually a little worse. And my, do- my wife said, well, why don't you go to the doctor? I said, I don't need to go to the doctor. It's not a big deal. And the day went on and it got a little bit worse. And so finally I just called my doctor to see what they suggested. I told them what was going on. They said, oh, you need to go to the walk-in clinic right now. You don't, we don't have any openings, but you need to go. Fine. So I went to the walk-in clinic and there was a physician's assistant who saw me and she did all the stuff, the vitals, and took my blood and did some things. And then she left and said, we'll be back in a minute with the results. And I waited. And as I'm waiting, she comes back and she opens the door. She doesn't even walk in the room. And she says, I don't want to freak you out, which is a terrible way to start. Because I'm like, do you know who you're talking to, right? I don't want to freak you out, but when was the last time you had something to eat? I said, I don't know. I had a sandwich at lunch. She said, okay, thanks. Closed the door and left. We need a little training and bedside manner here. Fine. So she comes back. He says, here's all these test results. We're going to need you to go over to the ER. The ER that wasn't on my schedule for today. What is like, what? I said, what are you looking for? And she said, well, we just want to make sure you don't have diverticulitis. Well, I don't know what that, I never even heard of that. So, of course, I go to the ER and I start Googling, what is diverticulitis? Terrible idea. It's not good. It's an infection in your intestine. But I went and they did a CAT scan, filled me with dye, and um, they said, okay, we're going to wait for the test results, but we're going to leave your IV in just in case we have to do surgery. I said, surgery? How did this escalate so fast? Well, it was in fact diverticulitis, but they caught it early enough. I was able to just do antibiotics, and that was the end of it. And it all started with an ache that I could no longer ignore. I've got another ache that I can't ignore. It's more a spiritual ache than it is a a physical ache. And it began earlier this year as I started reading through the Bible. Each year at Northbrook, we publish these reading guides. And if you take them, one of the guides you can read through the New Testament in a year. The other guides you can read through the whole Bible in a year. So I've been reading the whole Bible in a year. So I've been doing the readings every day. And as I, I read through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are some things that became startlingly clear. There are some themes that I noticed Over and over and over. And it seems as though from these two themes that there are two things in particular that God deeply, deeply cares about. The first is his relationship with his people. Over and over and over in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see this concern on the heart of God for his relationship with his people. 
So much so that the, the sin that seems to make God the most angry is the sin of idolatry, worshiping anything other than, than God, anything and any person. But the second thing, and it's a close second based on the repetition found in Scripture, that is close to the heart of God, the thing that he seems to care about deeply is the plight of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow. So much so that the second thing that seems to make God really upset is mistreating the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. I mean, we see over and over in the prophets God's frustration coming out. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, the prophet Isaiah, Ezekiel is speaking about the sins of Sodom. Uh, we remember in the Old Testament, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and typically we equate that with, with sins of sexuality. And for, for whatever reason, Christians are, are very fascinated with sins of sexuality. We always seem to place these at the top of the list. But when you notice the scriptures speak, sexuality is rarely there. It's there on occasion, but not very often. So much so that in Ezekiel, this is what the prophet says. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. The sin of Sodom was they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned with the plight of the poor. Now, I think when we hear these words, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, we bristle a little bit. Because we often hear those words through a filter. Th- those words, I believe, were hijacked in the 1840s by a guy named Karl Marx. Karl Marx used those words to perpetuate his ideals of, of socialism. But that's not what the Bible's talking about at all. So so for the next few moments, I want us to reclaim these biblical words, words that we find over and over and over again in the scripture. And I'm going to ask you also to offer me a little bit of grace. Because when when you're passionate about something, you can kind of sometimes come across as an irritating jerk. And I don't want to come across as an irritating jerk. I'm not, my intent is not to make anyone feel guilty. But I do hope that we will all be challenged as we open the pages of Scripture together. Wrestling with this one simple question. What is it then that God expects? Like, what does God expect of us? What does God expect of me? I want to begin today by turning to one of the great sacred texts of Judaism, uh, the prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament. Isaiah is a fascinating book because when Isaiah... Uh, was compiled, as, as some of you know, the, the scriptures were in many ways compiled from fragments found in some caves by the Dead Sea called the Caves of Qumran. And these fragments were found in clay jars and brought together that form our, our, in many ways form our Bible. But the prophet Isaiah was the only parchment, the only fragment of the Bible that was found in its entirety. It was not, it was not destroyed. It was not fragmented. It was in one solid piece. So Isaiah 61 
is my focus for this morning, Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read all 11 verses, so I'm going to ask you just to kind of lean in and hear the words of the Scripture. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. For the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks and foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. So you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make them an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are blessed. A blessed people, the Lord is blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, For as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Now this passage from Isaiah is significant because it reemerges again in the New Testament in the gospel of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his public ministry and is about to preach his very first sermon. So Jesus shows up for synagogue on the Sabbath, and he walks into the synagogue, and most synagogues followed a liturgy, which began with the singing of a psalm, then the reading of the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 11. Then there was the repetition of the 18 blessings, then a reading of the law in Hebrew and in Aramaic, and then a reading of the prophets, both in Hebrew and Aramaic. So this is where they are in the portion of the service when, when Jesus comes. We read in Luke chapter 4, beginning in sixteen, verse 16. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth where they had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was the custom. He stood up to read and a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It was pre-selected. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, 
gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, at this point in the service, the one that read the prophet is supposed to give the sermon on what they just read. And so here's Jesus' sermon. He says to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. (laughs) Silence. The words of the prophet Isaiah, the sacred prophet of Judaism, the promises contained in Isaiah chapter 61 are standing in front of you right now. And see, Jesus has come to reveal the heart of God. When someone says to you, hey, can I just share my heart with you real quick? Like when anyone ever says to me, Mike, can I just share my heart with you? I get real nervous real quick because I never know what's coming. It could be good. It could be not so good. I just want to share my heart with you. Okay, all the defenses go up. Well, Jesus in this moment is sharing his heart, the heart of God. And it begins with good news for the poor. Right now, this morning, as we sit together at Northbrook Church, there are roughly 650 million people who live in extreme poverty, meaning they live on less than $2.15 a day. Right now, in this moment. To put that into some perspective, this last week when I went to my favorite coffee shop, I bought a medium coffee, and it cost me $2.65. I stopped at a convenience store this week and I bought a Diet Coke because all that sugar in the regular is bad for you. To which you'll say, yeah, but the chemicals in that are bad. You're right, it's a lose-lose. But I bought one and I paid $2.52. Each day, it costs me roughly $5 to feed my dogs. In part because my old one lost all his teeth and I got to buy the expensive canned food. Another 23% of the world's population live on less than $3.65 a day, or roughly the cost of a gallon of gas. And another 47% of the world live on less than $6.85 a day, or roughly the cost of two single butter burgers at Culver's. This morning, 37 million Americans live below the poverty line, meaning they're sustaining a family of four on less than $26,000 a year. Jesus said, I've come to bring good news for the poor. And it's not just economic we're talking about. We're talking about access. My my kid, both my kids get up in the morning. They brush their teeth, I hope. They go to school. One in college, one in high school. As they go to high school, sometimes complaining about it, they forget there are millions of children that would love to have the access they have to education. If I get sick, I go online on an app on my phone and make an appointment with my doctor, and he usually gets me in that day. If I have legal trouble, I call a lawyer, and hopefully they solve it. I have access to all kinds of things, that I take for granted. That so many around the world 
It's not an issue of not being able to afford it. They just can't even access it. When Jesus talks about the poor, he's not just talking about economics or access. He's also talking about something else. Jesus, in one of his sermons called the Sermon on the Mount, said, blessed are the poor. He's talking about those that are spiritually impoverished, those that, those that are crushed on the inside. I've come to bring you good news. I've also come to bring freedom for those who are captives, those who are enslaved, literally. This morning, as we sit together, roughly 50 million people live in modern-day slavery. Roughly a quarter of those 50 million are children. Each year, 22 million people, mostly women, are forced into marriages they do not want, and two out of every five are young girls way under age. But there are also some in our world that are enslaved to our sins. 21 million Americans are addicted to a substance. Between 12 and 30 million Americans have a sexual addiction. And while we may sit back with our haughtiness and say, well, I don't have any of that, others of us are enslaved to lying and gossip, which destroys relationships and breaks the heart of God. So the undertone of the word freedom is also the word forgiveness. I've come to extend freedom and forgiveness to the captive. And I've, I've also come to bring sight to the blind. You ever spent time with someone who's blind? I have a friend named Mike. He was a friend from Colorado and Mike was blind. He wasn't born blind. Uh, he became blind through a series of medical circumstances. And I would have lunch with Mike once or twice a month and I'd, I'd pick him up and he'd come out with his with his, his cane, and he would take me by the arm as we walked into a restaurant and found our table. And Mike generally had a, a good attitude, but there were so many things that he missed about life, he missed about being able to see, one of which was he loved to collect books, like rare books. Very hard to be a book collector and be blind at the same time and appreciate it in the same way. I mean, Jesus in his ministry literally gave sight to some that were blind, but but there's also a spiritual blindness that Jesus spoke about. A blindness that covers our eyes and our soul from reality, that blinds us from the light of the fact that the gospel is a message of good news for all people. It's a message of joy. Jesus has come also to set the oppressed free. So many live with unwelcomed, forced restraint, evil oppression, There are so many who are voiceless, children who are abused, the unborn, the trafficked. God cares about each face, each name, and each story that those statistics represent. Now, of course, I know we can stand back and say, yeah, 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 but what about all those lazy, irresponsible people in the world? Yep, there are some people that due to their own irresponsibility, poor management of money, get themselves into a bind. Even the book of Proverbs talks about that. Despite their desires, the lazy will come to ruin for their hands refuse to work. I get that. That's, that's fine. But that's not what the scripture's talking about today. The scripture is talking about those 
that through most circumstances, not of their own doing, found themselves in unspeakable and unthinkable positions. See, when we care about the things that God cares about, we make the gospel visible. We capture the heart of God and make it visible. We care about the poor, the orphan, the marginalized, the oppressed. See, when we, when we care about something, we talk about it a lot, don't we? Like, I, I care deeply about my family. And so I talk about my family a lot. My wife, my kids, I love them, I tell stories about them. Sometimes to their dismay, I tell stories about them. But I apologize, and it's fine. But I love talking about my family because they are, like, they're the apple of my eye. I also love talking about my dogs. I love my dogs. I am a dog guy. I could spend hours at my, I would rather spend more time with my dogs than people. I just love my dogs. I do. I talk a lot about food because I like to eat. We talk a lot about those things that we find important in our life. I think in part we can measure how much we care about something by the attention that we give to it. So, so when you flip open the pages of the Bible, you notice the attention that's given to certain themes in the scripture. So, for instance, the word repent or the idea of repentance is discussed in the Bible around 50 times. Hell is brought up in the Bible roughly 60 times. Sexuality is referenced about 70 times in the Bible. Forgiveness is referenced about 100 times. Faith is discussed over 300 times. Discipleship is talked about 300 times. Heaven is referenced 600 times. And love is referenced about 700 times. But when you notice the passages about the poor, the widow, the oppressed, it's referenced over 3,000 times, more than any other topic in the Bible besides God himself. So when we ignore the thing that God cares about the most besides his relationship with us, we have a weak view of the gospel. Our discipleship is anemic. Now I get it. Some of it is awareness in geography. We live where we live and we have the life that we have. And so I try to make it my, one of my missions in life to expose those to the world. And so in 2017, I traveled with some Northbrookers and my daughter to the nation of Ghana. And we went to Ghana in part because uh, we were going to dedicate a school. Uh, Northbrook built a school there because uh, there was a village that we've adopted and they just did not have access uh, to education. Their building would always blow down. And so we went to the school, they put this plaque on it, uh, Northbrook Church in Richfield, Wisconsin. So in a small village in Ghana, there's this plaque on a school because you were generous uh, and supported the, the, these kids. And I took my daughter Hannah with me, partly because we were able to meet the kid that we sponsor in Ghana. Our family sponsors several children. One of them is a girl named Sarah who lives in that village and attends that school. And so we, we spent some time with her. And then I took my, my daughter to the village that these kids live in, and I wanted her to see some homes. And this young girl wanted us to, to come to her house and meet her family. So we went and we walked up to her house. And this young girl's house for a family of four was roughly one quarter the size of my garage that I keep my lawnmower and snowblower in. And my, my, my da- daughter's eyes were, were opened 
to the reality of the world. The day that we dedicated the school that you build, I saw something I've never seen before. The, the children uh, wanted to do a parade. And so they started the parade at the site of where they used to go to school, which was a lean-to that kept getting blown over by the rain. And the storm, so every time it rained, they had to cancel school, which was a lot. And so we built a permanent building. And so they wanted to have a parade from the spot of their old school to their new school. Well, when they walked into their new school, something spontaneous happened. I just, just want to show you real quick. We got a video of it. Can we just play that? Now, this is the tail end of their celebration. It was way more wild when they walked into the school. Now, I can promise you, when I wake my kid up for school, they're not dancing like that when they go to school. I there, that is, it is the opposite. But these children were excited because now they had access to something that we take for granted every single day. And in that moment, Northbrook Church, you made the gospel visible to a group of kids in Ghana, West Africa. See, when we do that, we restore the abundance of God. Jesus ends by quoting the prophet Isaiah when he writes, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that passage is a reference to a Jewish practice called the year of Jubilee, which is outlined in Leviticus chapter 25. And it essentially states that every 50 years in the land of Israel, the well-being of the community is restored. All the slaves go free. All the land is restored to its original owners. All the debts are forgiven. It's kind of a reset for the community. It's a restoring of freedom. It's, a, it's an interruption of the status quo. And so Jesus, as he quotes this verse, is essentially saying, I am the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. I've come to restore all things. And my church, the Christian church, is called to be a new community that will mark the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And it begins by making the gospel visible by restoring the abundance of God to our world. Many of you in this room, you support children through one of our ministry partners. And each month as you do that, you're restoring the abundance of God and making gospel visible. Others of us, you, you give backpacks when we do our backpack drive for the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. And when you do that, you're restoring the abundance of God. Others of you donate time and resources to the CareNet Pregnancy Center in Milwaukee, and when you do that, you're restoring the abundance of God. Listen, we, we live in a land of excess. We do. I don't say that in a guilt kind of way. We do. I mean, if you were to walk into my closet... You know I live in the land of excess. I have so many shoes. I have more shoes than my wife. It's rather pathetic. We live in a land of excess. And so to, to counter that, to, to join God in what he cares about, we partner with organizations that are doing something about the poor in the world. Some organizations I love are, are Compassion International 
Each month, my wife and I sponsor children through Compassion International. We believe in a ministry called International Needs. Each month, my wife and I sponsor a child from International Needs. There's an organization called Charity Water, which I also support, which digs wells for people that don't have access to clean water. I mean, we we can't even wrap our mind around the idea of not having access to clean water because all I do is turn on my faucet and my reverse osmosis machine. And my favorite of all organizations that I support, Northbrook Church, every month I support Northbrook Church because this church does something in the world. Now I realize the numbers are big and we can't do everything. But it matters. When I think about this young girl that I sponsor, each month when I write a $38 check, it matters to her. And there's an interesting difference. That's my daughter, Hannah, when she was in in middle school. There's one big difference between my daughter and this young girl named Sarah. Sarah's got a great family. Hannah's got a great family. Sarah's a nice young lady. The only difference between the two of them when it comes to economics is where they were born. That's it. I don't see myself as Sarah's savior. That's Jesus' job. Jesus is her savior. My job is to serve. So each month, as I support Sarah, I'm serving her. I'm washing her feet. Jesus gave us this startling example of what it looks like to live as a Christian, particularly a Christian leader in our world. And he did so by getting on his knees and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And he said, if you want to lead in my kingdom, here's the example. So when I choose to help the poor, I don't see myself as this guy saving the world. I'm a follower of Christ, washing the feet and serving those that God desperately cares about. So may we, as a church, be a group of people who choose to take a next step towards God by washing the feet of the world. When you leave today, if you go see one of our pastors, they've got some towels with the Northbrook logo on it. They're like golf towels. Put in your golf bag. I think they have some eyeglass towels. I want you to take one of those. And every time you see it, every time you use it, remind yourself, I'm here to wash the feet of the world. And now as we wrap up our our series of messages, I'm going to ask something of you. Out in the lobby, there are some tables with cards that look like this on them. If you scan the QR code in front of you, this card is also available there by clicking Next Steps. Over the last five weeks, the challenge has been to take some next steps towards God through the way that we live our life. I would love to hear your story. I'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. And so if you would just take a moment as you leave... Fill out this card with maybe a short story of what God is doing in your life. You can put your name on it if you want. You don't have to. And then leave it in one of the baskets out there. Because I get excited when I hear the stories of what God is doing in you and through you. So now, God, uh, we just wrap this up with hearts of gratitude. Uh, I am so, so thankful that we, as a church, are privileged to come alongside you and care about those things that you care about that we have the opportunity through our life, through our time, through our resources to wash the feet of the world. 
to share from our abundance those that are in dire need. Many of whom have dire need simply because of their geography. So may we be a church of great generosity, a church with a heart that cares about the things that you care about. And as we do so, may we take one step closer to you. Amen.